Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Charles Darwin. The nerves is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Breber and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today we're going to be handing out our NBA midseason awards. It's that time of year. We have just about reached the halfway point. So Logan, without further ado, I'll throw it over to you. We'll start with the biggest of them all. Who's your MVP? Yeah, uh, we right did now? this last week. Um, my MVP is still the exact same. I still have Nikola Jokic in this spot. Um, they're twenty-five and eleven with Jokic on the floor. Uh, he's only missed, I believe, three games. They're one and two without him. Uh, twenty-five, eleven, and ten are basically Jokic's numbers on insane efficiency: sixty-one, thirty-seven, eighty-two splits on almost sixty-nine percent true shooting. Which, if you guys are basketball nerds, that's mind-boggling. It's Quite literally unprecedented. Nobody has ever done this in the history of basketball. These numbers on this efficiency. I believe Jokic is still, I said this on the podcast last week, I still believe Jokic is the only guy to average 10, or one of uh, like five guys to average 10 and 15 on this efficiency. That's how remarkable it is. Uh, They're a 66-win team with Jokic on the floor. The Nuggets turned into a 13-win team without him. Uh, Yes, he's got a really good uh, cast of... uh, Cast the guys around him, Bruce Brown, Contavious Caldwell-Pope, a lot of really good role players, Bones, Highland. Uh, but Jokic is the engine that, that makes this thing great, man. They go from the best offense in all of basketball and all the superstars, an offensive rating of 124.6 with Jokic on the floor. They plummet to being the worst offense in basketball with him off. They are a league average defense with him on the floor and dead last in basketball without him. Uh, Jokic is the most impactful player in basketball. And... Uh, I still fundamentally believe that. Uh, You can put Giannis or Embiid here. We said this last week. I have no issue with it. Um, I think it's a little harder, though, man. The more that Jokic does this, it really seems like we are moving towards uh, the first three-peat since Larry Bird. It's what it really feels like. And, uh, yeah, I'm still rocking with Jokic. Has your opinion changed? I think this is a really tight, two-man race right now and honestly the top five candidates this year are all absurd and would actually probably be the MVP in a typical year and we're seeing 
heightened offensive production across the board. We know that league highs in offensive efficiency, but still what these guys are doing is just downright remarkable, like several historic seasons. And I shout out Luca for putting up 34 game on really impressive efficiency and winning over 60% of his games when he's on the floor with a team that I think has become a bit underrated in terms of supporting cast. Pretty similar in a lot of ways to the group that he took to the Western Conference Finals last year. Of course, the Brunson loss is a big one, and we've talked before about how swapping him out for Christian Wood, although I honestly think they are similar in terms of talent and how good they are at their roles. Brunson's role as a ball handler, as a creator for others, is just more valuable, more important. So obviously it's not as good as that team, and guys have had down years, Reggie Bullock and whatnot, but people are talking about it as if it's Jokic's supporting class last year or worst, and I just don't think that that is accurate. Like, the Mavs were the best defense in the league down the stretch last year. They haven't done that this year, but they've maintained most of the same personnel. That's besides the point. Luka is still making an amazing case, and Bede is having the best scoring big man season in many decades. I mean, by pure output, it's the best since Bob McAdoo in 1975, and it's also on historic efficiency. And I think Giannis, to me, is a pretty clear third guy when he is up there for the best defensive player on the planet and is scoring 32 a game and carrying a team that has pretty consistently been missing either Drew Holiday or Chris Middleton to still being among the league's best. Like Those are all ridiculous cases. Those are all guys scoring 32-plus a game on really good teams, generally carrying those teams beyond where they should be, and they're doing it really efficiently, and two of them are elite two-way guys. I think this race comes down at the midseason point, though, to Nikola Jokic versus Kevin Durant. And unfortunately, Kevin Durant is now going to miss, it looks like, the better part of a month, which really bums me out. But I think these two are neck and neck at this point. You gave Jokic's individual production, his team impact. It's ridiculous. Obviously, we've never seen this combination of scoring and playmaking from the big big man position. We've never seen this combination of scoring, playmaking, and efficiency from anyone ever. Legitimately. I mean, we've never seen anyone score 25 a game on 69% true shooting too, then throw in basically a triple-double average, and that's what Jokic is doing. They're 23 points per hour possessions better with him on the floor versus when he's off it. That is, I believe, the biggest number since Kevin Garnett in 2003, I want to say. It might have even surpassed that. It is undeniably one of the biggest numbers we have seen in the entire time that we've had this data. And when I say biggest, I mean I can think of like the three biggest years. And it's a KG season, it's a Carl Malone season, and it's this Jokic season right now. So that's just undeniable monster impact. I will say, though, KD has been the best scorer on the planet, putting up 37-5 and on 67% true shooting, just absolutely lethal, having one of the greatest mid-range scoring seasons ever, having one of the best pick-and-roll scoring seasons ever. He's the most efficient pick-and-roll ball handler in basketball and has completely turned around the season for this Nets team to where now they are considered a top-tier contender after they were in the toilet and it was oh wow the Nets era is over like they are going nowhere Steve Nash is fired Kyrie is suspended they started the year two and six and yet they've been really good with him on the floor outscoring opposing teams by seven points per 100 possessions they have been outscored when he's off the floor and they're 26 and 13 when he plays and I don't think you can argue that he has had a more 
significant impact on offense than Jokic because although he is clearly a better scorer, I just think Jokic's playmaking and the variety of ways in which he amplifies all his teammates, like, I'll take that over anybody. I'll take that over Steph's combination of pick-and-roll isolation scoring and off-ball value. I'll take that over Katie's combination of scoring and playmaking. I'll take that over Giannis's scoring and collapsing the defense and playmaking. I'll take it over anybody in the league right now. But KD is pretty clearly a better defensive player and has quite a good defensive season. So I honestly think their supporting casts are similar. Clearly, Jokic does not have a Kyrie, and he's had injuries to MPJ this year, and Jamal Murray hasn't been great. So I give the net supporting cast a slight edge. I do think they're a bit better. And the Nuggets do fall apart when Jokic is off the floor, but part of that is because it's like you don't have anybody who can nearly supplement the value of a playmaking savant big man right DeAndre Jordan Zeke Naji can't come in and do anything close to that so the entire identity of the team is different and they do tend to play starters with starters pretty heavily and bench guys with bench guys pretty heavily so I think it's really close I am going to give it to Jokic I do think he's the best offensive player alive I can't ignore the fact that with him on the floor the Nuggets are four points per 100 better than the Nets are with KD I think that's impressive given that again we're looking at comparable talent levels and he does have the I would say overall offensive production and efficiency edge, and he does have the team impact metrics edge. But I think these two are clearly in that top, top tier of players in the world, both to me undeniably top four on the planet. I would have them both in my top three right now, and I think that they are somewhat clearly the top two MVP candidates. Like It's tough to pretend that there's a big gap when Giannis is doing what he's doing and Luka and Embiid are doing what they're doing. But when I thought about this, it came down to Jokic or KD, and I'm going to go with Jokic just barely for all the reasons I laid out, but I'd also be lying if I didn't think for a moment. I kind of want KD to get this just because KD has one MVP, and it's been nine years, and Jokic has back-to-back, and they were both deserved, but I want KD to have more hardware that represents how truly great he is given how diminished the value of his two titles has been by so many people, but... Unfortunately, with KD being hurt, he's not going to get the real MVP anyways, and he's not going to get my midseason MVP. I also don't think you fundamentally believe that. I think you, as a smart basketball head, believe that the award should go to the best player in basketball, and you know the best player in basketball is Jokic. I don't think you believe that. Well, I just said I had a little bit of a tugging at the heart because it's going to kind of bum me out if we look back on all this and KD only has one MVP, especially when this is up there for the best season he's ever had and just a remarkable job of salvaging a season like I can hardly remember in my lifetime. Like, it does not go through the trajectory of, oh, this is a complete disaster, everybody's confident it's over, and then it's, whoa, actually, they might be good enough to win the title again, and KD looks like he might be the best player alive. And I really couldn't confidently say, if it comes down to a playoff series, who I would rather have between these two. Like, the top four for me of Giannis... Jokic, Katie, Steph is so, so close. So it's an incredible race. I mean, can you remember a race like this? Certainly not in terms of just pure production, right? Yeah, I mean, back in my day, I'd probably say the one between Oscar Roberts and Will Chamberlain and Bill Russell. I and Elgin Baylor. 62, of course. <laughs> um, in my lifetime, I, I can't. Um, no, this is the most competitive, and I think... I don't think I'm looking too far ahead. I mean, this is just where the state of basketball is, man. It's only going to get better. I can't – the players are just getting – take a look at a guy like like Paolo, man. Like, 
these freaks that are 6'8", 6'10", they can just handle, they can do everything on the floor. I'm really excited to see what basketball is going to be in 10 years because I think it's going to be really positionless. I think we're going to have a lot of guys who are huge, who can do it all. I'm not saying that the quick, agile guards are going to go anywhere, but we're moving to just such a collectively just such talented and skill-based game. Um, It's beautiful. And no, I think this is the most competitive one I can remember in my lifetime. You're much more the basketball historian, Carson. Uh, Is there anyone that was either this neck and neck or had this many deep competitors? I mean, think about, I want to put this in a historical context for people. Carson, who were those guys at three and four in the 2004 race? It was, uh, what, like Jermaine O'Neal and Pages Stoyakovich? Jermaine O'Neal and Pages. Yeah. Exactly. Well done. I, I mean, I, look, no disrespect to either of those guys, right? But that really puts in context how much the game has changed and how much better players are than 20 years ago. I, it's unreal. Like, the star power, the depth, the talent of these guys, it's it's historic. And so, yeah, I, I really do. I think this is the deepest MVP race and the best MVP race I can remember. Yeah, we've had super close ones. I think you can look back to, for example, 2006 when you had five different guys get at least 14 first place votes. But included in that group is like Chauncey Billups, who's putting up 18 and 8. And Kobe, who's having a historic scoring season, but is doing it on a team that isn't very good, right? It was like everybody had clear flaws in their case. This year, it feels like even accounting for that offensive inflation, everybody's doing legitimately all-time great historic stuff offensively. And some of them, again, while being a lead on both ends of the floor, and pretty much all of them while carrying really good teams. So I think that this MVP race is every bit as remarkable as it is cracked up to be. And it's just a joy to be a basketball fan right now because, like you say, the talent is just ever-improving. And I don't know how Paolo would feel about being referred to as a freak but he is one and he is the rookie of the year and I really don't have that much else to say about it it's been clear for a long time I assume you agree yeah I do have a little stuff uh to say on Paolo's game um just to run down his numbers real quick 21 7 and 5 or 4 excuse me on 44 32 76 55 splits uh the Magic have won uh they've been 12 and 21 with Ben Carroll on the floor they're three and four uh without him and yeah, I mean, the thing that has really impressed me about Paolo is his uh, his fluidity with the ball in his hands, um, how he's able to create space off the dribble. Um, I really underestimated that about Paolo coming into this year. Um, the moves that he does to, to get shots off, uh, the behind-the-backs and the step-back threes, the it's really fluid. Now, that being said, I think it is also wherein lies uh, Paolo's flaws. Uh, I think Paolo's a little too jump-shot reliant right now, and... I think it's good for the future because he's not scared. If you sag off of Paolo, he's going to shoot it. That being said, a three-pointer from Paolo wide open is not a good shot still. He's shooting 32% from behind the arc. It's not the best shot quality. And I feel like Paolo can kind of, just in games, get a little too reliant on. Don't get me wrong, man. Some nights he'll hit four, he'll hit three. Um, it's not the most conducive to winning offense at this point. He's shooting 37% on pull-ups, 27% on pull-up threes, 32% overall on jump shots, 38% on step backs and 38% on mid-range shots. And he's shooting 37% in the paint, non-restricted area. And so what's frustrating about a guy like this is for a guy who should be so good at dominating matchups and dominating mismatches, he's huge. 
He should be, you know, when he gets a guard switched onto him, he should big body them and look for that contact driving to the rack. When he gets a big guy switched onto him, he should try to drive past him. And don't get me wrong, he's still really hard to defend because the defenders respect his jumper. They move with him all over the floor, and, and he's going to pull it. You have to contest him. But I think he should do more work on the low block with his back to the basket. I think that's his bread and butter now. And I think if he wants to win games with the Magic this season, look, he's going to get better as this goes along. He's a rookie, and this is still a very impressive rookie season. 21 points straight into the league is unreal. That's why he's a rookie of the year. Um, But he's still a really good back-to-the-basket player. The turnaround is really smooth. The playmaking, the attention that he gets on the low block. And when he's driving, the biggest thing that I see with Paolo is that I want him to draw contact more, man. He kind of shies away from it, and I feel like he gets stuck in those jumpers, man. It's Paolo's at his best when he's getting downhill and driving the lane. And, I, again, I'm nitpicking here because he's a rookie. Paolo's going to be exceptional in the years coming. I think he's a really special talent. Um, his playmaking does need to improve, man. How many times I see Paolo... There's no, like there's no immediate pass to be made. There's no assist readily readily available for him, and he'll drive into a pane of three guys when there's a wide open dude on the arc or on the wing, and he doesn't kick it out. Um, I think he needs to play within the team a little more. I think he needs to stick to his bread and butter. Um, I've been really impressed though, and like I said, as this goes along, his jumper is going to get better, and yeah, I think it is encouraging that he's not afraid to take these shots, even though he's not shooting well. Right? It's not a Ben Simmons thing. He's not afraid to take the shots. He's just missing them. They're going to fall more. He's going to be a dangerous, dangerous perimeter creator. He already is at, at 6'10", 250. Um, once that stroke starts falling, I think Paolo is really dangerous. But I want to see him I want to see him get downhill a little more. I want to see him use his back to the basket and post game a little more because they're really developed, and he's very good. Um, but he's playing like a guard. I don't know. Those are, I'm nitpicking here with Paolo. Um, it's been a great season. He's... There are spots. I mean, he's fucking bouncy for a 6'10 dude too, man. Um, those are just what I, the things I nitpick with him. He's a little jump shot reliant. He's not a great playmaker right now, and he's not looking to be a playmaker. He is looking to score every time the ball in his hands, um, every time the ball is in his hands. But, uh, yeah, I just want to see him be a little more efficient, play a little more team basketball, a little more within himself, and, and not force stuff as much, but I get it. In, in a situation like this, it's tough because Paolo's always got the ball in his hands. And uh, there's not a lot of other great perimeter creators here. Cole Anthony and Markel Fultz are not great perimeter creators. They are scorers. They are bucket getters. Um, that's that's all I'd nitpick about Paolo, but uh, he's going to be next year. I think the Magic make a playoff push. I am going to lean on the side of not being very critical of Paolo, and it's not that I inherently disagree with some of what you've said I mean he does definitely love his jumpers if you drop he's gonna take that pull up three sometimes he'll work his way through the pick and roll and he really likes to get to that sort of short mid-range pull up like he likes shooting his pull up jumpers all I would say is I don't think that's a bad thing because he's gonna continue to develop that and it's going to be essential to his game if he's going to reach his maximum ceiling which is not Mm -hmm. ultimately back to the basket player or guy who is all about getting downhill it is guy who can attack from everywhere and is one of the most versatile scorers in the league and can kill you with the pull-up jumper on all three levels right he can just murder you he just I just I just think he makes it look really easy right now and I don't want him to like fully get away from that you know what I mean Paolo's a bully on the low block dude and even NBA size guys he's able to rip through spin really clean off and get to the rack easily um I don't know. 
I'm not going to get mad at the rookie for being inefficient, especially when you play for the Orlando Magic. Um, Paolo's really special. Uh, the only other guy, I mean, in consideration is Benedict Matherin, and uh, I don't know. I mean, Matherin's, uh, Matherin's still coming off the bench. He's not... He's an impact player for Indiana, but he still has his inefficiencies yeah. and stuff like that, and there's still a very major gap uh, between now, the two. Matherin has absolutely no argument over Paolo. Like, his shooting has really come back to earth to where he's 33% from deep now, and he doesn't have really any playmaking impact. Say what you want about Paolo, but averaging four assists a game as a 6'10 mm -hmm. teenager is just still pretty darn impressive and I do think that he has a lot to build on there so this is not a conversation to me I mean Paolo's 20 but you know he's two months removed from being a teenager <laughs> it's got to be Paolo and I'm still very confident we're looking at like an all NBA kind of guy down the line here all right defensive player of the year Logan who you got okay hand up full transparency I'm Kind of battling between five guys here. I wrote down five names or six. I, I've got Brooke Lopez, Giannis, Nick Claxton, uh, Jared Allen, Jaron Jackson Jr., and it's a six-man race um, for Logan Camden. I just, I just don't got a know whole to go bobsled team so in here. To great, dude. We have yeah, we got a starting five <laughs> and a sixth man here. Um, I think I'm going to give it to Bam Adebayo, and I know that seems counterintuitive because the Heat have not been great. When I think fundamentally, who would I rather have, what defender I would rather have, I think Bam's the most switchable, most versatile guy in basketball, and the biggest thing is that we've seen the Heat's entire defense change uh, statistically for the better. Um, early on in the season, uh, the Heat were one of the worst defending teams inside the rack. I think they were bottom 10 in field goal attempts, in rim protection percentage. Like, uh, they were abysmal. And they were also abysmal at giving up threes. Like, this team defense sucked. Um, since December, I believe this team is top five in protecting the rim and top five on the perimeter in limiting open threes and uh, by three-point percentage. Now, there's noise, right? There's game-to-game uh, -game that fluctuates, but that's since December. And when you look at Bam, man, I mean, night to night, I think he's the most switchable big man in basketball, and I don't think there's anybody else I'd rather have anchoring my five spot. Um, you know, there are other guys that do really good things, right? The funnel them in big men, Brooke Lopez, Nick Claxton, Jared Allen. They're great rim protectors. It's probably why I take Jaron Jackson over them too because um, mm -hmm. he's impactful in more versatile ways. Bam Adebayo, I harp on this every year. He's in the 88th percentile of defending pick-and-roll ball handlers. Name me another big man that's going to be up there. I mean, you know, Draymond is also super versatile, super switchable. He's in that mold. But when it comes down to it, uh, you know, we're still early. This is midseason. I didn't look at wins. I didn't look at defensive rating. I want to look at the individual player. And anytime I ask myself what defender in the NBA that I want the most, it's Bam Adebayo. And so I'm, I'm going to give it to him. I know that I don't even – are the Heat in the playoff race? Or like, are the Heat in the playoff right now? I don't think they are. I think um, they are. They may have just. Uh, they're not excelling. In. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's just a way to put it. The Heat are not great right now. A lot of their woes have to do with offense and all the things that we've talked about before. Defensively, since December, Miami has been great on that end, and it's because of Bam Adebayo. I know Jimmy Butler's out there too. Jimmy's uh, had his health issues. Bam has been out there. 
uh, a lot, and he's been great. Again, I think he's the best defender in basketball, so I'm going to award that um, tentatively right now in my six-horse race. I have Bam Adebayo leading the pack. You love Bam, man. You always have, and I suppose that you always will. And he's a phenomenally versatile defender. I just think there's a versatile defender who has made an even better case this year and the argument against him would be games played but other than that I feel pretty confident in this and that is Jaron Jackson Jr. who is having just a monstrous season on that end of the floor and the impact is evident in pretty much every way 14 games into this year Jaron Jackson Jr. had not set foot on the floor yet the Grizzlies were 21st in defensive rating Since he came back, they are the best defense in the league by a couple of points. And throughout the year, the Grizzlies defense has been 9 points per 100 possessions better with him on the floor. A defensive rating of 103.4, which would be 6.5 points better. Never mind. Never mind. Never mind. We're calling an audible. We're calling an audible. Okay. And I'm not even nearly done, really. 6.5 points better than any other defense in the league. And I think that you made a great point when you're talking about versatility, right? Because we can all sit here and appreciate what Brooke Lopez does, right, as that really great drop defender, as that imposing shot blocker and all that. But that's empowered by having really good defensive personnel around him who they trust to give people trouble on the perimeter. And Triple J just has a level of versatility that is really impressive. First of all, he's the best shot blocker in basketball right now. He's averaging 4.4 blocks per 36 minutes and 3.2 per game overall so he's this super imposing drop defender first of all because he can totally do that he takes up so much space he has this 7-4 wingspan and I swear it's like every time they're like I think I'll just take the floater I wouldn't want to go up against Triple J in the paint he's just massive in there and then he's also lethal as a help defender and can make up for so many people's mistakes with that length and that timing and he disrupts passing lanes where That's a unique advantage that he has over a lot of these other guys. Brooke Lopez does not have that same kind of impact. Triple J with his length, with his hands, getting over a steal a game. So he does all these things as this interior presence, this menace. And then also, you put him on big wings in spots. And you're comfortable switching him out to the perimeter. And he can really give people trouble with his feet, with his length, and his discipline this year is the best it's ever been. Just three fouls a game, which like, yeah isn't great but it's easily a career low like he did foul out of last game ironically but for the most part he's doing by far the best job that he has in his career of staying out of foul trouble staying on the floor when he where he can have that massive impact so I just don't think you're getting that level of defensive versatility of elite shot blocking the best in the league and high level switchability the ability to play so many different coverages to impact passing lanes everything that he does and again the impact on team success has been obvious I think I gotta go with Triple J he's only played 23 games but I would just feel a bit foolish picking anyone else when I think he's just clearly game to game been the guy I want to stick on that point uh, for a minute you talk about team success and I know we disagreed about where Memphis would finish in the standings uh, mostly because of offense does Triple J's dominance on that end change your mind about that team's ceiling at all? I think they're very good. I don't think they're a team I would trust to get out of the West, even in a weaker West. There's just a little bit about their half-court offense that is still 
not at the level I would like to see. And when it comes down to a series against the brilliance of Jokic and the great quality shots that he can consistently create for his team, I just trust the Nuggets more there when they still have really good role guys and they can hang on the defensive end of the floor. Even the Warriors, man, it's just the Grizzlies are physical, they're gritty, they're deep, they have a phenomenal defensive ceiling, and they're really good, they're really talented. But I still just don't trust that half-court offense quite in the same way that I do some of the other teams out west. So to answer your question, not really, but they are better than I thought, and Triple J has been great. I will say outside of that, like shout out to Nick Claxton. I do think that compared to Lopez, he does still have more switchability. Like he's mm-hmm. pretty good on his feet, but I also just kind of want to give a shout out to Draymond, who I think every year deserves to be somewhere in this conversation. Like the dude is just a savant. And I think last year would have won it if he had stayed healthy, but it's got to be triple J to me. All right. Most improved player, Logan, who you got? Uh, I've got my man Shea Gilgis-Alexander, and the only other guy I can think that maybe you'd go with is Laurie Markkinen out of, I don't know, narrative base is, you know, I mean, we didn't really, I don't know, man. I mean, you take a poll around the league, and you ask how many heads, how many basketball experts said that Laurie Markkinen was going to be an all-star this year, they'd probably laugh at you. Um, So narrative-wise, I think maybe you could go with him, but I think the pure skill leap we've seen from SGA um, has been phenomenal. Numbers-wise, he's went from 24 last year, nearly 31 points a night. Um, that's really the big change. And then efficiency-wise, 45% from the field last season, over 50% uh, this year, 30% from deep last season, 34% from deep uh, this year. I mean, he's got a ton of volume. Um, and he's at nearly 62% true shooting. And uh, I made a video breaking down SGA's improvement, um, his, mid-ma- his mid-range mastery, uh, I'll reiterate these numbers, guys. 47% in the paint, non-restricted area, 45% in the mid-range, 46% on pull-ups, 42% on step-backs, a disgusting 53% on floaters. And then you just look at all the versatile ways he gets it done. 79th percentile out of the pick-and-roll, 72nd percentile in isolation, and he's 71st percentile in transition. Um, he's he's just a mismatch. SGA is a mismatch in... All meanings of the world uh, are the word. He's a slinky, man. He's so long. He's so slithery. You put a guard on him, they're not going to be able to hold on him. Uh, I saw in the Wizards game, I think like a week back, a couple nights ago, it doesn't matter who you put on him, a forward, a center. They don't have the foot speed to keep up with him. Guards aren't long enough to defend him. And uh, it's, it's a lot to do with his acceleration and deceleration. Because he's so good from the mid-range, the defenders have to respect Every little move that SGA makes, and I think a really good example of that, especially when he's going to initiate contact, there's a possession in that game. Denny's in his pocket, and uh, uh, Denny is uh, Denny Abdiha is on him at the perimeter. He's driving on him. Uh, SGA immediately initiates that contact and fakes, like just stops for a like half a second, and he makes Denny think that he's going to cut back to the mid-range. Denny hesitates, and then he just blows right by him for an easy layup. And Denny's a long guy. He's a good perimeter defender. 6'8", long arms. He's decently athletic. He got him in his pocket. And once you're in his pocket, you're fucked. SGA's going to get you, man. He's such a... You have to respect every move he makes on the basketball court, and that's what makes him such a scary... 
uh, player to defend. If you drop an inch, he's going to pull that step back three on you. If you commit a little too far to the mid-range, he's going to cut back inside, and he's going to uh, drive the lane. If you drive to the lane to protect the rim, he's going to put up a floater or a mid-range shot, and it's probably going in. Um, SGA is an absolutely disgusting scorer of the basketball. He's nuanced beyond his years as a scorer. Um, you just have to fear him from all three levels, and uh, he's a beast. Uh, like I said, if you guys want an in-depth breakdown from a couple weeks ago, I uh, did a YouTube video. I want to give a shout-out to Carvel Teft, uh, who was originally on this gentleman out of the draft, uh, liked his skill set. I want to shout-out uh, What's on Tap NBA, James Adams, a uh, friend of the show too. James was on him last year, uh, and I remember having an in-depth conversation with him. I disagreed. James told me, he said, it's weird. A guy like SGA has all these star traits and yet he's not a star yet. And I told him, I was like, I don't know, man. I don't think he has the burst. I don't know if he's got these athletic tools. Um, I was wrong about SGA. Um, he definitely does. And then shout out Peyton T. Gallagher, too, friend of the show, who's always been a big SGA guy. Um, he's disgusting, man, and I think this is his award to lose. Wow, I love Logan running down the shout-out list for everybody who was right about SGA. <laughs> I actually am not going to go with SGA here, and I think it's pretty darn close. But actually, I feel pretty confident in my choice. Earlier in the year, I would have gone with SGA, but I'm going with marketing. And I think when you're talking about SGA, it's really about his improvement as a pull-up jump shooter, specifically out of the mid-range, because everything else you talk about, that inherent deceptiveness, that change in pace, that touch shot making, that's always defined his game, right? He's always been exactly, as you said, slinky. He's just one of the guys who moves like that, and it's an incredibly valuable skill set because it makes you so hard to guard out of the pick and roll when you have his combination of size and touch and finishing skill all in all. He's incredible, and he's scoring over 30 a game really efficiently. But honestly, I've been more surprised and kind of more blown away by what Laurie Markkinen has done this year. And let me just run down the numbers on improvement, because if you want to talk about all-encompassing leap, the next minute or so, I think, will reflect that. So, Markkinen has gone from scoring 14.8 points per game to 24.5, almost a 10-point-per-game scoring leap, from 58% true shooting to 67% true shooting. And keep in mind, as we ran down on last podcast, he is now one of only four guys to ever put up 24 game on 67% true shooting. Steph Curry in 2018, Kevin Durant, Nikola Jokic are both doing it this year, and Markkinen is doing it this year. So you're looking at historic combination of volume and efficiency. Compared to last year, he is shooting 7% better in the restricted area, up at 72%. Great mark. 8% better in the paint outside the restricted area, 52%. Those short-range shots, hooks, floaters, he's been devastating. 12% better for mid-range, 50.6%, exceptional mark. 15% better on corner threes, 53% he's shooting from the corners, and 3% better at above the break threes, over 38% this season. That is significant improvement from every single range on the floor. You break down on NBA.com, shooting splits, that's every range they give you. He is markedly better, and in most cases, astonishingly better in every single one of those. Last year, he was a 25th percentile isolation score. Almost never did it. And that Cleveland offense was not entrusted with ball handling duties. He wasn't a guy you looked at and said, hey, go punish this mismatch, Lowry. Go get yourself a bucket, man. Now he's a 97th percentile isolation score on over five times the volume of last year. 
He went from being a 40th percentile pick and roll roll man to 75th percentile. And we see he has the ability to catch and finish skillfully, good touch on the inside, and of course, maybe the most lethal pick and popper in basketball right now. He's gone from 53rd percentile spot-up shooter. Like last year, he was 36% from deep, right? He's always been a good shooter. He's always been a stretch big. But this year, he's been absurd. 94th percentile spot-up efficiency right now. I just think this is a completely different basketball player. And sure, Utah, I think, has Mm -hmm. a really nice offensive structure. And I love the various ways that they use him. And they do have really pretty ideal spacing, especially compared to Cleveland, where in some lineups he's the three and he's playing with Mobley and Jared Allen. It's just sort of a more inherently congested thing, and now he has more space to get himself downhill and all that. It's undeniable. But to take a massive uptick in role and to simultaneously take a massive uptick in efficiency from everywhere and to show skill improvement, to show improvement in terms of the variety. I'm just stunned, man. Like, if you were going to tell me, hey, SGA is going to be a clear all-NBA guy this year, or hey, Laurie Markkinen is going to be a clear all-star this year, I would have said, what the fuck do you mean Laurie Markkinen is going to be a clear all-star? <laughs> like, if you told me this at the beginning of the 2019-20 season, when, as we've talked about way too many times on this show, he comes out open at night and puts up 34 on the Hornets, then yeah, maybe I would have listened to you. But... I think that this has been astonishing improvement, and it's been a joy to watch. He's one of the best offensive players in basketball. And by the way, what I don't think people are talking about enough is that this guy is under contract for two more years after this one at $36 million total. And frankly, although the Jazz are competitive and are pretty darn good offensively, with this hodgepodge roster... I don't know that they're getting more value out of Laurie Markkinen than they would be dealing him to a contender because that's like a game-changing contract. That's one of the best in the league, and he could elevate so many teams just because of how seamlessly he fits in any offense. Like, who doesn't want a four who can attack in all these different ways, punishes mismatches, will do it out of the post, will get downhill, and can shoot over anybody? He just compliments you anywhere, and he can guard in space on the other end. Laurie Markkinen is going to become one of the biggest trade chips in basketball in my opinion and I would love to see him go to an actual contender because even with a decrease in role and volume I trust his efficiency and I trust his skill set at this point and he is the most improved player to me even though he isn't necessarily on a contender right now I would say I think it kind of hammers home the point about marketing and it's not one I want to say too uh it's nice seeing how confident Laurie looks mm-hmm. in himself night to night. He's so, he believes in himself. And that's honestly like, I, I don't want to get all corny here, man. That's a big aspect of, that's the biggest aspect in life and in basketball, in my opinion. Do you have faith in yourself? Are you confident in what you're going to doing? When you're pulling up for that jumper, do you believe it's going in? Mentally, he looks better. He looks hype. But uh, the thing about winning basketball, even though they aren't necessarily a contender, Marketing is winning this team games. I mean, the Jazz are, what, a nearly 500 roster? Like, they're 20 and 23. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. That's crazy that it's leading to winning basketball games. This is not Devin Harris, I don't know, man, putting up 17 on the 12-win uh-huh. nets, you know? It's not, I don't know, you can put up whatever garbage numbers guy you want to put up. These aren't garbage numbers. And again, I think like you said, Carson, I think a lot of credit goes to this offense and how spread out it is. I think it plays perfectly into how 
Markkinen wants to play and how, like, this is an ideal, I think, situation, not talent-wise, but how the offense is, is structured um, for him to succeed. But uh, I don't fault you for this. I think only pushback I will go is instead of it being an all-star leap, which is very impressive, and I did not see this coming, um, I think SGA has taken the genuine superstar leap this season, and I'm going to reward that over the all-star leap. But it's very impressive, and fuck no, I didn't see this coming. Yeah, and you give the numbers on the Jazz being a solid team. To give even more context to that, with Markin on the floor, they outscore opposing teams by 4.5 points per 100 possessions. Very good mark, and they're 11.5 points per 100 possessions better with him on the floor than off it. I mean, he's turned from like this spot-up shooting guy to a incredibly skilled wing, big, whatever you want to call him, wherever you want to play him. I trust the dude to ball out, and it's been really, really fun to watch. All right, let's go to the last of the player awards here, Logan. Sixth man of the year, who you got? Also, all these awards are named after people now, so this is the John Havlicek Sixth Man Award. That was the George Mikan Most Improved Award that we just talked about, which doesn't make sense because Mikan never took a leap. But who you got for Sixth Man of the Year? I'm so mad that you did that. I was hoping we'd go through the entire podcast without you mentioning mm-hmm. that all these awards have names now. I think it's so dumb. This isn't hockey, guys. Uh Yeah, so for the John Havlicek Award, I'm going to give that to Bobby Portis. Oh, um, uh, I think, I don't know, man. I think for people who are just bored by the Bucks or don't watch Bucks games, I don't think they appreciate Bobby Portis, man. Um, I think Bobby's the best bench player in the league. I don't know if there's another guy that I'd want. Um, the intensity, the energy that he comes in. Like, I don't know if that's a factor that I can tangibly, no, it's not a factor that I can tangibly measure, but there's an energy that Bobby brings on the court when he steps on. I feel it. I feel it through the TV screen, man. And... He just changes the game. This guy's averaging 10 boards a game in 26 minutes off the bench. 14, 10, and 2 on nearly 50, 32 splits, uh, 82 from the line. It's 56% true shooting, but he impacts the game at all levels. Another uh, aspect that I think plays into this, Bobby hasn't missed a game. Every game that the Bucs have played, he has been out there, and he's a game changer offensively. They're the 28th-ranked offense in basketball with him off the floor. They're the 15th-ranked offense in basketball with him on the floor. Um, his postgame and footwork is absolutely disgusting. It makes me mad. I'm not even going to lie. It makes me mad. I'll see him shoot that turnaround fade, and I go, Bobby, that's such a dumb shot. What are you doing? Scoop right in every time. His mid-range game is dirty. He's an elite rebounder. He's a great help side defender. Again, man. He's shooting 41% on turnaround Jays, 49% out of the mid-range, 64% on that little BS turnaround hook that always goes in. He's shooting 71% on putbacks. Again, 26 minutes a night, Bobby Portis, 10th in rebounding, 21st in offensive rebounding. That doesn't make sense. Um, So, I mean, look, people are going to look at the scoring numbers I think people are going to, and also, too, I want to give credit to the Bucks' entire bench here. They have a great unit. Joe Ingles being back is a game changer. That dude throws dimes. Uh, Pat Connaughton is a great bench player. I like Marjon Bochamp and what he does for this bench. Um, but I think a lot of people are going to look at the raw scoring numbers or look at these guards. Westbrook, Jordan Poole, Malcolm Brogdon, Christian Wood, I feel like they're going to look at, and, and I think Wood has a case, but... 
I don't feel like enough love is being shown to Bobby Portis, and I don't know if it's because people don't watch Bucks games or people attribute it all to Giannis or, or what they're doing, but Bobby's a game changer, and I think this is my easiest award to hand out, wow. in my opinion. And I think that if Russell Westbrook, if Russell Westbrook wins this award or takes it over Bobby, I'm swinging. I don't know who I'm swinging on, Adam Silver, Hondo, John Havlicek. I'm coming for somebody's head, man. Unfortunately, um, John Havlicek is no longer with us. I, it's just it's going to frustrate me, man, because Russell Westbrook is a fundamentally flawed basketball player. He still is. Credit to him and taking this bench full of absolute scrubs and getting them to play for him and having good nights sometimes. And I like that Russell's a positive, energetic guy now and that he's not all in his own head and mad. Good for Russ. Bobby Portis is a better player. He's more impactful, and he deserves this award. I'm going with Russ. No! <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm joking. I'm he already stormed out. He's not even sticking around. God, Logan thinks that I would pick Russell Westbrook for an award? What a jackass. This is. I guess I wait for him to come back for the second straight episode. I'm not taking Russ, you fool. It's a joke. Thank God, man. <laughs> I'm not going with Bobby, though. I do love the choice. I have loved Bobby Portis for a long time, ever since he was back on those crummy Bulls teams, and then he went to Washington. I just always loved that mid-range skill set. Man, I've always been a fiend for a mid-range master, and he was always a great rebounder and the ability to stretch the floor. And Yeah, he competes, dude. And I think that he is certainly in this conversation. I would probably have him third. I'm going to go with Christian Wood for my top spot. And I think at the quarter season mark here, I would have gone with Malcolm Brogdon. And I think that that's probably still who I would have second above Bobby. I think that they're close. But I do just think that Brogdon is still fundamentally more skilled and a more complete offensive player, certainly. Like, I just think... Pretty darn good season for him. 13.5, 4-4 on 62% through shooting. Almost 45% on pull-up threes. 82nd percent isolation score. Above average pick-and-roll ball handler. And just has the poise. You know, he just kind of has that incisive game where he can get into that painted area. He hasn't been a great finisher at the rim this year, but he's pretty darn skilled in getting there. Really good shooter, really good passer. And on the best team in the league, I think Brogdon makes a case. But... I'm going to go with Christian Wood. I just think the man is having a truly brilliant scoring season off the bench, and it's not one of those volume but inefficient scoring seasons that doesn't really matter. It's a great scoring season. It's one that is complementary to their best player and pretty much essential to their success. Like Christian Wood is clearly the Mavericks' second-best player, and he's putting up 18-8-2 on 65% true shooting and is efficient in, like, Every way, 93rd percentile role man, dynamic athlete getting to the rim with really good touch, and obviously a really effective floor spacer, pick and popper. 85th percentile spot up shooter. Like, you just cannot deny the value of this guy's pure shooting ability. But then, of course, oh my God, let me close out on Christian Wood. Oh, well, he's perfectly capable in isolation, man, for a 6'10 guy. He can handle that ball, he can get to his spots. And he can score on your wings for sure. He can attack your closeouts. He's a good post scorer, 76 percentile. Again, that combination of athleticism and skill and touch. I just think this is like sub-all-star production that we're seeing from him in 28 minutes a night, really efficiently, 
on a good team. And again, it's essential, and he's clearly the second-best player. So to me, that's just the most important. Like, you take Bobby Portis off the Bucks, and guess what? As long as Giannis is there, they're going to find a way to win games. You take Malcolm Brogdon off the Celtics, and guess what? They went to the finals last year. You take Christian Wood off the Mavs, and you're losing clearly your second-best offensive and overall player. And uh, I just think he does so much for Luka, being a spacer, being a guy who can attack mismatches, who can alleviate some of that pressure getting his own bucket, or who you can always throw the ball to and trust to finish effectively, to make a play, to knock down an open shot. And I've always loved Christian Wood, and he's a great rebounder. And I would like to reward him for what has been a really pretty phenomenal season. I think that's a good argument. I think that's a good argument. The remove the player from the situation and that's how impactful they are. Cause you're right. I'm still going to rock with Bobby cause Bobby's my guy. And I just, I don't know, man, I, nobody talks about Bobby. Nobody talks about Bobby Portis, you know, mm-hmm. and I get it. He's overshadowed by three stars. And I think that is the right argument that if you took him off, what man, the bucks win, I don't know, three less games, five less games. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't know. He's, I think he's underrated to a point now, and I'm going to show love to him. Also, uh, one more player award. I'm going to give my citizenship and sportsmanship award to Killian Hayes. Okay. I love that. <laughs> Let me just say a couple more things on the Wood point, because I don't want to distill this argument down to, well, he's more important to his situation. I also think that he's point blank better than Bobby Portis. I mean, he's just... More skilled, more athletic, bigger, better shooter, like all these things. And Portis has a grit advantage, a defensive advantage, but I don't think that overcomes the fact that Christian Wood is like an all-star good big man on offense. He is starting now, and let me pull up his numbers since he's been starting real quick because they're going to be quite good. And so I wonder if he'll eventually work his way out of this conversation just because I don't know why they would bench him. Putting up... 20 and 9 on 54 39 80 splits since he became a starter in 12 games. So we'll see. He may end up working his way out of this conversation. But for now, I think he's the deserving guy. I will say, though, the odds do not reflect this. And you touched on it with the Russ point. I did want to hit on this because I think people are way off with the six man of the year conversation this year. The favorites are Russell Westbrook and Jordan Poole. And Listen, Russ has done a good job this year as a playmaker, and I thought that he was doing a nice job of helping AD specifically. And, like, yeah, he's brought energy and positivity, but at the end of the day, he is still, point blank, one of the worst scorers of the basketball to get rotation minutes in the NBA. Like, 49% true shooting this year, absolutely abysmal on jump shots, 28% from three, obviously turnover prone as always. Yes, he's competing more defensively, but he still doesn't really know what he's doing on that end of the floor. Just not a guy who you could really make a case for six man of the year for. Jordan Poole, I also do not think should be a legitimate candidate. And I get that he has the raw production with 20 a night and some solid playmaking, but it's been super inefficient, man. 30% from deep, having a really rough season. And I think if you listen to Warriors fans and really watch the games, frustrating decision making, Mm -hmm. forcing shots, forcing drives, just 
bad, reckless decisions. He's averaging 3.6 turnovers a game, and that includes some costly ones that really stick out in the mind recently in clutch spots. And the Dubs are 10 points per 100 worse with him on the floor. And yeah, there's been a starter bench divide with them all year. But now he has been starting as of late with Steph out. And I just, he started over half their games at this point. So he would not be a viable candidate. But still, his odds are way up there because Steph will come back. Matherin, I just think like, yeah, it's pure score. But eh, on subpar efficiency, still not scoring as much as Christian would. So why would he have a better case? So... I just look at the odds and I'm like, why is it Russ and then Poole and then the field? Because that's not what it should be. That's literally just looking at raw production. Both those guys have had very flawed seasons in other ways. Russ more than Poole. Poole has been put in some tough circumstances now, but still not nearly as good as he was last year, Jordan Poole. So that's all I had to say on that. I don't know if you have anything you'd like to sound off on there too. Uh, we can get to other awards. I just want to see... I'm gonna I'm gonna pull up uh, while we're talking about our next award. Where like 49% true shooting percentage ranks Russ in the league? I believe I actually saw this in a TikTok from friend of the show John Tortorelli recently. I don't know what his volume parameter was, but it was second to last in the NBA out of whatever qualification he had set. So you know we're talking about really truly abysmal stuff here. <laughs> I mean, that conversation just proves to me that people either fundamentally do not watch or do not understand basketball. Yeah, wow, look at this, dude. I've put no minimum requirements on here. Um, da, da, da. Russell Westbrook, 406th. Yeah. Um, oh, look, he's above Haywood Highsmith, well, though. that's something. I got good news. Well, that's a positive takeaway. <laughs> All right, last award, Logan. Coach of the year, who you got? I played with Taylor Jenkins here. Shout out. You sure um, did. I just think for – you get a team to play hard for you every year, man. It's like the Mike Tomlin thing. You get a team to buy in, to play hard every night, and the Grizzlies do. And, I mean, I, I really had questions with Santi Aldama, with, you know, David Roddy, with, like, LaRavia – or, yeah, I think LaRavia. I mean, just who, who they added into the rotation, it was weird. They lost some impact guys, and – it had not matter. Now, Triple J deserves a lot of credit, too. Um, but that was boring. And I think when you look at mostly Coach of the Year stuff, it's mostly narrative-driven. And I think the most narrative-driven one here this year is probably Jock Vaughn's case. Um, and I don't even mean to say that I don't think Jock deserves it, because he certainly does. It has been a drastic turnaround. Again, for again, I want to contextualize for people. They were 2-5 and five under Steve Nash. This was a... The house was on fire, man. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the smoke hadn't... <laughs> it, it was burning up. It was going up in flames. And with all the Kyrie drama, it really looked like the season was lost. The locker room might be lost. Like, this was just a wash of a season. And Jacques has gotten people to buy in and play hard. And he's gotten them to say, fuck all that noise. We're playing basketball. And for Brooklyn, that has been such a hard issue with Simmons with Kyrie, with all this, seeing, watching tumultuous situations with coaching, it makes me really appreciate Carson. It makes me appreciate that aspect of coaching a lot more. Um, not just X's and O's, not just when you're subbing a guy into a game or when you're using a timeout. Fundamentally behind the scenes, getting guys to stay focused, to buy in, and to be committed. And Again, man, this locker room was lost when Steve Nash got fired, and 
Jock has gotten them to buy in, and that's the biggest thing to me. Behind the scenes, what you're doing to get these guys' heads screwed on right and get them to play winning basketball. Jacques Vaughn has done that. They're 25-8 and eight under him. That's exceptional. They play great defense. Um, and damn, it just sucks that KD got hurt. And it was such a weird play, too, dude, with Jimmy. Like, KD wasn't even involved on the play. He was the help side guy, mm-hmm. you know? And it sucks for Brooklyn. This does not change my opinion uh, of who deserves Coach of the Year. Um, even if they go on a bad stretch, just the turnaround at the start of this year, uh, I think this is Jock Vaughn's award. I agree with you. And I think it's almost inarguable. It's like you said, dude. Literally took a dumpster fire, a team that everybody had abandoned hope for, and they have the best record in the league since he started coaching. They're number four in offense, number four in defense under Jacques Vaughn. In their first seven games under Steve Nash, they were 29th in defense. I mean, it is a fundamental flip in culture, in identity, and just in buy-in. And yes... Steve Nash was working against a lot of factors. Seth Curry wasn't healthy at the beginning of the year. Joe Harris sucked. Didn't have TJ Warren yet. And I think the biggest thing is that the Brooklyn Nets were done with him. And Kevin Durant didn't want him there. And Kyrie Irving didn't want him there. And so it was probably just never going to work out. And that's how you see the trigger pulled so fast because things went south pretty fast. And so I'm sure just getting rid of him energized this team a lot. But they've been through a lot still, man. I mean... You had, obviously, the Kyrie suspension. Simmons still working his way back into form, and I'm not going to pretend that he's been like way better than he was at the start of the year, but I do think he's been a bit better, has found his footing more on the defensive end of the floor, I would say. Certainly not what he used to be, but is like a solidly above-average defender again. And I think that's the biggest difference, dude. It's This team should never have been bad defensively. With Claxton, the level he's at as a rim protector, and with his length... They are one of the longest teams in the league. I mean, some combination of Ben Simmons, Kevin Durant, Nick Claxton, guarding pick and roll, that happens all the time. That's insane length. Throw Royce O'Neal in there. It's like they just have dudes who can guard out on the perimeter and dudes who can impact people inside with their length. And Jacques Vaughn, however much you want to credit him for that, is the one who's actually tapped into it. So I think it has to be him. I just don't know how you argue anybody else. Fired coach morale seemingly in the tank, Kevin Durant coming out saying, what do you expect me to do with these guys? Kyrie getting himself suspended, Ben Simmons getting absolutely destroyed by everybody, just seemingly nobody outside of KD at the top of their game, and Kyrie, but again, he got himself suspended for a little bit of anti-Semitism. To corral all that and turn it into the best team in the league over a 30-plus game stretch, that dude's the coach of the year. Shout-out Taylor Jenkins to have a Grizzlies team that has dealt with so much injury, Tied for the one seed out west, ten and six without Triple J, twelve and eight without Desmond Bain, three and three without John Morant. This is what he does, man. This is what the Grizzlies do. They win games with people out. They're deep. They play hard. They play both ends of the floor. They play fast. They just have one of the clearest and strongest identities in the NBA. And if Taylor Jenkins never wins Coach of the Year, I will be pissed off because every year since he started, I think he's been top five for me. So. The dude's really good. And I will say, if you're just looking at pure schematics, I would have to throw Mike Brown in there because I think he has really manufactured a beautiful Kings offense, admittedly taking a lot of Warriors principles that he had picked up there. But 
I just love how much they're using handoffs. And I touched on this in the video I made about Sabonis. You can check out on our YouTube. But running the most handoffs in the league by far, it's just a great way to create shots for Kevin Herter. It's a great way to weaponize the passing instincts, the screen-setting ability of DeMontis Sabonis. And they're scoring there with 96 percentile efficiency. How much he's emphasized off-ball movement, cutting. They cut the fourth most in the league. Score there on 93rd percentile efficiency. And... They're the fifth-best offensive basketball, and it's just Sabonis looks the best he ever has. I think you have to credit the offensive structure for that a lot. Kevin Herter is like a, a new man. I mean, obviously, he's always been a really talented young guy, but you just elevate his value so much putting him in a system like this, and Mike Brown's made the most of that. So the Kings are good, and they're a great offense, and those would be my honorable mentions. But if it's not Jacques Vaughn for going 25-8 and eight after a disastrous start to the year, I don't know who it is. And I just think he has such wisdom, man, with that gray beard of his. I just look at him and I say, he's only 47 years old, but I think he's been around in some form or other for many millennia. And I think he has accrued a great deal of knowledge that he has to pass on to all of us. And I think he's doing it. Lovey Smith must be the wisest man on planet Earth. Well, unfortunately, he got fired. Sad. Hell of a beard, though. Hell of a beard. No, seriously. But he doesn't have the resume to back it up. Jacques Vaughn has the resume this year. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for us here today. This was a fun one. Always love getting to shout out the league's best and brightest, and we have just some incredible stuff going on all around the NBA. So there you have it, our midseason awards. Check out our last episode. We picked our all-star teams up to this point. May not be final. We may go back and revise those before the date itself, but that's what we got for now. We'll be coming out with another pod later in the week. So stay tuned in for all of that. And as always, follow us across our channels, TikTok at NerdSesh, where we're coming out with the most content, trivia stuff, basketball analysis. You got it all there. Twitter, Instagram, follow us at NerdSesh on Instagram and TikTok at Nerd underscore Sesh on Twitter. Join our Discord, if you would. That will be in the link in our bio on any of our social channels. Check us out on YouTube, of course. Uh, We've shouted out a couple of videos there already. And... As always, appreciate you guys and hope you've enjoyed. So with that, I have been Carson Breber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.